Let's open the Scriptures to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47, Ezekiel 47, in our text in John 7, and you know we've been making our way through the Gospel of John, the Lord Jesus speaks to the people at the Feast of Booths, and He uses the image of water, and so we're going to tap into some of the background of that image of water here in Ezekiel 47. So the prophet Ezekiel has been given to see a vision that's a very extensive vision starting a few chapters earlier about a new temple and an angel guides him through this new temple and he's made to measure the temple and take observations of the temple. And then in chapter 47 we read the following, then he, that's the angel, brought me, that's Ezekiel, back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. And that would be the Dead Sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Enegleim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing." I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 7, <clears throat> continuing our series in this Gospel. We've arrived at verse 25, so we're going to take the section 25 through 52. So the Lord Jesus is um, <clears throat> in the temple in Jerusalem. He's been teaching. There's been some controversy. Then we pick it up at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they are 
whom they seek to kill. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that, that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So far, our Scripture passage, our text. Church of Christ, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. That saying came to mind this week, uh, working on this passage, the, the text before us. Figuratively speaking, the Lord Jesus is busy leading a whole lot of horses to the water. Jesus is teaching there in the temple in Jerusalem. He's teaching to thousands of people at the Feast of Booths, as we saw last time. And in that huge crowd, 
of Jews, there are at least three groups that John marks out in our text. There's, there's the citizens of the city of Jerusalem proper, people who live there year-round. Then there are the Jewish visitors to the city for the feast. And then there are the rulers of the people described as the Pharisees and the chief priests. Jesus is teaching to all in front of Him. So all of those groups are in the crowd. And in our text, all of them give at some point some kind of response. They hear the teaching, the preaching of the Son of God, and they respond. But at the end of our text, how many horses are drinking the water they've been led to? What about us? Are you drinking the water that Jesus offers you? Here in this temple, I'm not referring to the building. We've seen this before. The temple is the congregation. It's the people. Here in this temple, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us. He does it in His written word. He does it in His spoken word from the pulpit holding out to each and every one of us the living water that can quench the thirst of our souls, are we in fact drinking it? The Lord Jesus will shortly ordain our brother Gerard Woodenberg to serve among us as elder. He, alongside seven other elders, they, the elders, they come into our homes they bring us what? They bring us the Word of Christ. Teaching, encouraging, exhorting us. Will we drink it in? Will we take it in and have our spiritual thirst satisfied? That's the issue of our text. As I bring you this Word of the Lord, quench your thirsty soul in Jesus. Quench your thirsty soul in Jesus. We'll take a look at two things, wasteland wandering and oasis refreshment. Now, before we get into the reactions of the crowds, the various groups among the crowds, let's just remember for a moment where we are on the timeline of Christ's ministry. We're no longer in the early months Jesus has been teaching and preaching and healing for at least 18 months and perhaps more likely closer to 30 months. Jesus' ministry was at least two years long, but many think three years is more likely. We know that it's at least two years because we have Him recorded at uh, celebrating two Passovers at least. There's a strong possibility of a third Passover. What we know for sure is that in John 7, he's at the Feast of Booths. That's, as I mentioned last week, in the month of October, September, October. And six months from now, he'll be back in Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover in the month of April, give or take, April, March, where he will be arrested, tried, and crucified. So Jesus is only six months away from Golgotha, and he knows it. He knows the timeline. He knows when his hour is. He makes reference to that hour in the Gospel of John. My hour is not yet, he'll say at different times. 
and he refers to the hour of his sacrifice. And already in the Gospel of John, the earlier chapters, we've seen Jesus going back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem a couple of times, and John tells us that in those chapters that the people were in awe over his signs, those, those miracles. Here in chapter 7, John also highlights that the people were in awe over his teaching. So as we take in the responses of the crowds and the leaders, we need to understand that this isn't the first time they've heard of this man. The, Jesus is well known to them by this point. The people have seen and experienced the presence of the Son of God in the flesh. They've seen the Messiah. They've heard the Messiah. They've seen His ministry of grace and power for at least a couple of years. And that is what makes their responses so difficult to receive, so disheartening. It begins in verse 25 of our text with a group John describes as the people of Jerusalem. So these then would be the residents of the city of Jerusalem who live there year-round, people who would live in the same community as the chief priests and the teachers of the law. So these are people who would have an ear for what their leaders were saying and a sense of what the leaders were thinking. You can hear that in their remarks. These are also the same people who had a front row seat every time Jesus came to town, to Jerusalem. I mean, every a festival or many of the festivals, feasts, he would have been there. These citizens of the capital, they would have seen, they would have heard Jesus like none other. They should have had the most reason to welcome him as Messiah, but instead all they can say at this point is, isn't this the man they are seeking to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So these Jerusalem Jews, they know all about the plot of the leaders to kill Jesus. And then they see, hey, Jesus is out there in the temple preaching openly and unchallenged. And that makes them question whether or not the leaders now have figured out that he actually is the Christ, so they're not arresting him. Does that sound a little bit bizarre to you, brothers and sisters? It sounds bizarre to me. This is their reasoning. The Sanhedrin, the, the governing body of the Jews, is not out here arresting this fellow in order to murder him, because that's what they want to do. The Jews already admitted that, the, the crowds. So they're not out here arresting him. Have they figured him to be the Messiah after all? I mean, what kind of leaders would they be if they switch from thoughts of murder to thoughts of him being the Messiah? That sounds like gobbledygook. Who, who would make such a switch in their thinking? And then these Jews of Jerusalem, they dismiss this notion because they say they know where Jesus is from. They know He's from Galilee, that's implied, and when the real Messiah comes, no one will know where He comes from. Where do they get that from? They're just pulling that out of thin air. Certainly they don't get it from the Bible, from the Old Testament later in our text. Another proud part of the crowds that are in Jerusalem, they know 
That part, verse 42, has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They know their Bible. So, you've got on the one hand the, the Jews of Jerusalem thinking that the Messiah will just appear out of nowhere and nobody will have any sense of where He's from. You've got other Jews who know their Bible better thinking, no, no, he, the, the Messiah is going to have His origins in Bethlehem, comes from the prophecy of Micah. But those Jews never bother to check where Jesus actually comes from. They think He's born in, in Galilee. They don't actually check out the origins. All of them are ignoring things. All of them are ignoring the evidence that is staring them in the face, the man who is right there in front of them, whom they have seen. Remember this now, a couple years in. They have seen him do what? Make the lame walk. Cast demons out of the possessed. Raise up the dead. Teach the truth of God's people with authority and clarity and power like nobody ever had done before. These people, these crowds, have been led to the fountain of living water, but they're here on the edge refusing to drink. They refuse to believe in Jesus as Messiah. This helps to explain Jesus' response. Verse 28, maybe you were puzzled by that. Jesus doesn't really seem to give much of a response to their questions and their reasoning. He certainly doesn't provide evidence for His identity by doing a miracle on the spot. He doesn't because He's been doing miracles for two years. And they haven't accepted any of that evidence. He does not try to persuade them yet again that He is the Christ, like He did extensively the last time He was in Jerusalem. We, we covered that in chapter 5. If you read chapter 5, there's a whole lot of intense teaching from Christ, trying to persuade the people that He is from God. No, at this point in His ministry, He doesn't try to prove Actually, he turns and reprimands them. He says, you know me, you know where I'm from, but here's the reprimand, you don't know the one who sent me. You don't know God. That's the biggest problem for you people. The Jewish crowds, remember, they're celebrating the Feast of Booths, right? So they're here in Jerusalem thinking themselves to be the faithful covenant children of the Lord. But Jesus says to these citizens at this festive of feasts, right there in the capital city, if you truly knew God, you would know me. Because I came from God. I'm only fulfilling the mission that God sent me to fulfill. Jesus doesn't carry on trying to prove. There comes a time, you know, when you move from explaining the gospel to somebody to calling them out on their stubborn unbelief. You people do not know God at all. 
It's a sad thing. After two-plus years of Jesus' ministry, the people of of Judah and and the, the crowds of Jews and leaders in their thoughts, they are still wandering in the wasteland with questions that don't make sense, if you actually analyze their questions, and objections to Jesus that have no solid footing. Where there should have been faith in Jesus, where there should have been acceptance of Him, of all that He has shown them, there is confusion and uncertainty and outright hostility. After His response to the Jerusalem Jews, we read in verse 30 that the leaders made an attempt to arrest Him. That's hostility. That's hatred. Followed by a statement in verse 31 that many of the people believed in Him based on the signs they had seen Him do. Now, when you read that, you say, hey, there's a, there's a bright light here. That sounds kind of promising. But we've seen this movie before, haven't we? Back in John 2. Right in the very same city in Jerusalem, in the temple, John said there, chapter 2, verse 23, that many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. Same kind of sentence as we have here in verse 31. But, chapter 2, Jesus did, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people, for He Himself knew what was in a man. It wasn't the real deal. They believed, but it wasn't true faith. It was an empty faith. Simply believing that a man can do miracles is not yet true faith. Do you believe that he came from God? Do you believe that this man standing in your midst is the son of the living God who came to this earth to give his life in payment for your sins? Do you love Him as your Savior, and do you worship Him as your Lord? That's true faith. Six months later, this crowd in Jerusalem will show what they really think of Jesus when they shout for Him to be crucified. They don't believe. Even and especially the leaders are all tangled up in knots trying to make sense of this rabbi from Nazareth. They want to arrest him. They want to put him to death, but they clearly don't understand what he's about. When Jesus responds to their attempt to arrest him, Jesus says in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Pharisees, they try really, really hard to work out what he means, but it's equally clear they haven't got the foggiest notion. They ask among themselves, will he go out to the dispersion? What's that? Well, that's pockets of Jews living abroad. People who had been, Jewish people who had been basically forced to flee their country because of earlier wars, and they settled in certain parts of what would then be now the Roman Empire. They call that the dispersion. They were scattered abroad. And Greek being the common language of the peoples in those lands, it was the dispersion among the Greeks. So the Pharisees are wondering if Jesus is going to to leave Judea and, and go out to these pockets of Jewish believers and raise up disciples for Himself there, abroad. 
But what the leaders have failed to see is that Jesus has not been talking about a geographical location, a location on the earth, on the geo. He's talking about a heavenly location at the Father's right hand. And the reason they fail to think of God and heaven above is that they have all along refused to accept Jesus' teaching and testimony about all of this. If you go back to John 3 and his discussion with Nicodemus, and if you were to look at John 5 and that discussion that followed the healing of the lame man on the Sabbath, Jesus says time and again, very plainly, He says, I have come from the Father. The Father is in heaven. He has sent me. I am His Son. I have come to do the will of my Father. He says that over and over again. John the Baptist testifies about Jesus that He is from the Father. Jesus' signs, that's why they're called signs, these miracles, they are signs that prove that He is from the Father. Jesus' own teaching tells the people He's from the Father. He's from heaven. And so the only reason the Pharisees and the chief priests and the others are now in a state of confusion is because they straight up reject all they've heard and seen, all the evidence that Jesus has put before them. They are refusing it. This is the the very hatred that Jesus was talking about earlier in in verse 7 of chapter 7. Hatred with that sense of total rejection. Even when one of their own leaders, Nicodemus, you remember Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was part of the Sanhedrin. When he tries to ask his fellow leaders for simple fairness in their dealings with this Jesus, what do they do? They pounce on him. Maybe you notice that at the end of our text. They actually first pounce on the temple officers who failed to arrest Jesus. They say to these temple officers who come back empty-handed, they say, well, how, how come you haven't brought him back? And they say, no one ever answered like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. And then the Pharisees and the chief priests, they go after these temple servants, these temple officers. Have you also been deceived? Verse 47, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Do you see what they do? Do you see the name calling? Do you see the mockery that the leaders engage in? The temple officers, the, the, the police officers basically for the temple, they were called uh, dunces who are easily duped. The crowd is labeled as accursed. You know, that's what people do when they run out of reasoned arguments and solid rationale for their position. They arrogantly resort to put-downs, contempt, and jeering. It's something we need to be warned against ourselves, brothers and sisters, when we engage in argumentation or debate as fellow believers, perhaps over very sensitive issues, 
maybe divisive issues that we never ever resort to attacking the person but stick to analyzing the issue while still caring for the person on the other side of the table. That's the Christian manner. You don't attack the person. Well, with the temple police silenced and made to look like fools, then Nicodemus, a full member of the Sanhedrin, he pipes up, doesn't our very own law require hearing a man first before judging him? I mean, Nicodemus is just bringing up law school 101, right? Everybody gets a fair trial according to the law of Moses, don't they? And yet, the Pharisees and chief priests, they come back with more ridicule and more nonsense, actually. They say to him, here's the ridicule, are you from Galilee too? Are you from that part of the country that is despised? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You see what they do? They, they marginalize Nicodemus. They minimize Nicodemus. When you haven't got a real response, then what you do is you discredit the speaker and you make him look like an idiot. You from Galilee too? You part of the group of idiots from the north? And then they add a so-called reason, but it too is bizarre and baseless. They speak about the origin of a prophet. What does the origin of a prophet have to do with the principle of the law of Moses of giving a man a fair hearing? So what if he's from Galilee? Does that mean he doesn't get a fair hearing? Doesn't everybody deserve due process according to God's own law to see whether he's actually broken the law before he gets punished? They'd be breaking the ninth commandment if they went through with that, condemning a man rashly and unheard, but they just nonsensically defend themselves with ridiculous reasoning. It's a thin cover for their earlier plan to kill Jesus. They are reasoning this way, if no prophet ever arises from Galilee, then this Jesus must be an imposter because he can't be a genuine prophet. Then he must be put to death if he's an imposter. The only thing is... Guess what? Prophets have arisen from Galilee. So they don't even know their own Bibles that well. Jonah was a prophet from Galilee. Nahum was a prophet from Galilee, so far as we know. So you put it all together, you see the Pharisees, they're, they're just grasping at straws like the crowds around them. All the evidence for who Jesus is is staring them in the face, but they choose to wander in the wasteland of denial, the wasteland of nonsense and unfounded objections. We're not going to accept Jesus for all these unfounded reasons. Is that where you are at? It's a fair question to ask a congregation, you know. Because who are the people Jesus is confronting? He's confronting objectors who grew up in the church. This was the church. Same as us. They were being preached to by the Son of God. 
and they just rejected it. Especially the chief priests and the Pharisees thought they were so much smarter, so much more illumined than those who actually believed in Jesus. There was an arrogance in their hearts. Is there an arrogance hiding in your heart? Do you judge Jesus and his followers, his true followers, as a bunch of suckers who are being taken for a ride? Where does all that get you in the end? Where does all that denial get you? Where does all that keeping your distance from Jesus, if you don't give your heart to Jesus, is your life better? Is life more fulfilling apart from Christ? What meaning is there to life outside of Jesus? It's just a wasteland. And you will only spend your life wandering in that wasteland until you die and enter an eternal wasteland of punishment, all because you refuse to drink the water of life. My sister, my brother, do not refuse. Don't let that happen to you. Wander no more if that's what's been happening in your life, but come to Jesus and quench your thirsty soul in His oasis. For despite all the objections and the opposition, the ridicule, and the, the nonsense obstacles raised by the crowds and the leaders, the Lord Jesus presses on with His saving work, you know. The Father's plan is unfolding, even in the midst of this chaotic and foolish blather from the people. We see it first in verse 30. They were seeking to arrest Him, but nobody laid a hand on Him. Here it comes, because His hour had not yet come. Same in verse 44. They wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. His hour had not yet come. What hour? Whose timetable? That's the hour of his death, and the timetable is the Lord's. Jesus was operating under the protection of his Father and according to the timeline of his Father. And nobody could thwart that. And Jesus knew that too. A few times in the Gospels, the crowds wanted to kill Jesus. We read that on occasion, but he, he simply passed through their midst. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. God is in control still today. He wasn't just in control of the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's in control of the whole world. He's got a plan for the whole world. And you're part of that plan. The Father guides our steps still today so that nobody can arrest you or stop you or thwart your service of the Lord unless the Father so wills it. And when the Father so wills something like that, then He assures us that it's all part of His plan that brings to you and me salvation. Just like when Jesus got arrested, it was part of the plan. So do not be afraid. Stick to the plan as far as 
your responsibilities are concerned. And Jesus in the, all of this is still filled with grace and compassion. He has to reprimand the people, but he doesn't give up on them. Even in the face of all the opposition, he stands up in the middle of that feast, verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Anyone who thirsts, let him come to me. Pharisee, Nicodemus will eventually come. Not there yet, but he will come. All the Pharisees are invited. All the chief priests are asked, called, all the citizens of Jerusalem. It's a wide open call, just as it always has been. If anybody thirsts, it's a metaphor, of course. We understand that. Jesus has been using a number of metaphors. What does He mean? Well, if anybody recognizes the dryness of their soul, how parched and lifeless is my soul because of my sin and guilt. That's the thirst He's talking about. If you understand that about yourself and you want that to change, you'd want your soul to be quenched and satisfied, then come to Jesus and drink in the forgiveness of all your sins. That's what this means to drink the water that He's offering. It means you trust that He is who He says He is, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, whose sacrifice brings payment to God for your sin, whose sacrifice creates peace between you and the Lord. Come to Me. You will have peace with your Maker, your soul will find joy and contentment in knowing your Maker, in fellowshipping with your God. If you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then He will send His Spirit to live in you, to always fellowship with you so that you experience this peace, that you have it impressed upon your conscience that your sins are forgiven, that you will always experience His presence living close to you, inside of you, day and night. That's why I prayed for Brother Steph. None of us can get through, not even his dear wife, but the Spirit of God lives in him, still now. And not even death can separate him, says the Bible from the love of God. So he's experiencing the love of God even in the hospital bed. That's the living water that Steph drank all his life. That's the call of the gospel that's held out here. That's the water that's offered at every servant from this pulpit and in every visit brought by the elders, also our brother Woodburg. Brother Gerard, drink yourself from this water every day and then lead your sheep to drink from the same water. We know that Jesus is describing the work of the Spirit because John explicitly says that in verse 39. He says that at the time Jesus spoke these words, the Spirit had not yet been given. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit was not at work previously in the time before Jesus' arrival. We see Him lots in lots of places in the Old Testament at work. 
And he certainly was at work in the lives, in the hearts of God's people under the old covenant. But what Jesus is referring to here is the outpouring of the Spirit that would occur on Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit would be poured out. So this, it's an expression of liberality and fullness. The Spirit would be given in full measure to the church to live within each and every one of God's people so that each Christian would become a temple of the Holy Spirit and each congregation a temple of the Holy Spirit. That had not been the case under the Old Covenant. This work of the Spirit is pictured in a number of passages of the Old Testament using the image of water, one of which is Ezekiel 47, which we read. Can't get all the details, but let me just give you the Coles notes. In Ezekiel's vision, he sees God's temple in Jerusalem. There's this new temple because, of course, in the, uh, the Babylonians had destroyed the old temple, and Ezekiel was in Babylon, so he sees a brand new temple. It's kind of like the idyllic temple. And just a small stream he sees, uh, to his surprise, coming out of the temple door. In the real temple, there was no stream coming out of the temple door. So this was, this was strange. This was clearly something out of the ordinary. And it gets even more strange because as the water trickles out of the temple, and you remember the temple's on a mountain, Mount Zion. It goes down the mountain then, naturally. Instead of the water dissipating and getting uh, weaker and the amounts getting smaller, Ezekiel finds that the stream actually gets stronger. The water grows in size, in depth, in intensity, even though there are no tributaries adding to the main stream. How does that work? The trickle suddenly becomes a brook, the brook a stream, the stream a mighty river that could not be crossed, Ezekiel says twice. Everywhere this water goes, it makes dead things alive. That's the other thing it does. Even as it enters the Dead Sea, and you know, I think, that the Dead Sea, even as we speak, is, is a sea that is so filled with salt, there are no animals living in that sea, no fish in that sea. But Ezekiel is made to see that as the water from the temple enters the Dead Sea, suddenly the water comes alive, it becomes fresh. Fish come to live there, and even so many fish that fishermen can live there. Fishermen by the shore of En Gedi, unthinkable to any Jew, unimaginable to anybody who knew the Dead Sea. Yet, says the Lord through Ezekiel, the Lord will do it. The water is His Spirit, you see. It comes from God who's in the temple. That's the imagery. The Spirit is pouring out. It's a forecast of Pentecost. The Spirit is pouring out. He goes east to the dead zone, into the dead sea. That's code for the Spirit's going to go out to the Gentiles and He's going to enter the dead hearts of the Gentiles through the preaching of the Word. And He's going to make those hearts come to life through the call to repent and believe. Dead hearts are going to respond. You'll become fishers of men, He told the disciples, and they did. Dead hearts come to life. 
Jesus had said in chapter 5, 37, all that the Father gives me, all of them will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The Lord Himself will do this. Can't lead a horse to water. You can lead a horse to water, can't make him drink. That's true. Except the Lord has the power to make him drink. And the Lord will make those drink who belong to Him, who are written in the book of life. That's also part of, of, of God's unstoppable plan. So brothers and sisters, look to the Lord. When you meet it in your life, people who are resistant to the gospel, don't look to them, look to the Lord. He's the one who changes dead hearts. He's the only one. And not a single heart from one of His elect will not go unchanged. Brothers and sisters, for yourselves, do not leave this assembly without drinking from the water, the living water that Christ holds out to you. Don't go home unless you've drunk it in yourself. Throw out your excuses. Ditch your objections. Abandon your confusion. Get rid of those obstacles you've put in your own way. Get rid of them all and believe what the Lord Jesus Christ Himself tells us so plainly that He is who He says He is, the one sent by the Father to quench the thirst of your soul today and forever. Believe and be satisfied. Amen.